My name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Embers to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today, I'm speaking with John Lee. He is the founder of CustomMobile.app. He is a software product manager by day and a small business owner on the side. That's the uh, CustomMobile.app website. He customizes mobile apps for podcasts and networks that, that nurture um, listener relationships and uh, really help build member-supported content businesses. So it uh, sounds like it's kind of a, a niche product. Um, are there many competitors in that area, John? No, actually. Uh, I think we're the only agency that makes it affordable for the, the independent podcaster and independent content creators to have their own branded mobile app on the app stores. Typically, these things are only accessible to the bigger companies, but uh, we found a model to make it accessible and affordable for everyone. You came on uh, today um, really to, to talk about some philosophy. I find it really interesting, some of the, the stuff that you wrote to me. And um, I really thought it would be great to have you on and just really dig in. Um, but I think more interesting is, is your background and how you ended up um, in, in software development, that sort of thing. Um, from where you began. So you, you were born and raised in upstate New York, uh, went to school up there. Is that- Well, not upstate, not um, upstate. actually in Queens, New York City. But before okay. I get into that, thank you, David, for inviting me onto your show. Um, I don't have these conversations very often and it's, it's like my second passion. I love having philosophical conversations and I wish I could have more of them and you've given me an opportunity to have another one. So thank you for having me on your show. Um, I was born and raised in Queens, New York City. So it's a, that's a borough of New York City. Uh, grew up in the suburbs. Uh, went to university in upstate New York at Cornell and studied animal science. So I've got a bit of a bioscience background. After university, I lived abroad for a couple of years in Korea, doing some social work, working with uh, kids in the foster care system there, teaching English. Uh, being a mentor over there for about two years and in that time decided to come back to the U.S. for grad school. So I went to get my business degree in social policy at Brandeis up in Massachusetts and which kind of opened the door for me to have a proper job or a proper career uh, from that point forward. And I found myself uh, being interested in software and making a move and pivoting my career in that direction I wanna say maybe five or six years ago, and I found a great comfortable place. Like this is, it, this is the kind of work that I've been looking for and I'm glad I found it 
bit later in my career, um, but plan to be in this space going forward. I really enjoy the work. I, I'm, I'm curious what, um, what your life was like growing up. Um, what, did, what did your parents do? So my parents are immigrants from Korea. Um, my dad had a bunch of different jobs. He was a taxi driver in New York City for many years. I remember the taxi being in our driveway. Um, he also worked at different dry cleaners. My mother worked at different nail salons. Uh, eventually she opened up her own salon. And I think she had that and ran that for about 20 years. She was really the consistent breadwinner for the family. They were always working, both of them, but uh, it was really her business that helped us survive, put food on the table, go to university, all that. So that was the environment I grew up in. And do you have siblings? I have a younger sister, yes. Now, once you um, decided to go to university, I, I, I think you said that you were planning on becoming a veterinarian and, and that, that shifted, I, I guess. Yeah, I mean, all growing up, I've loved animals. That seems to be a theme from when I was very young. I'd love creatures, animals. And so it, it made sense maybe in middle school, high school to think about going into a field where that was involved. And so I, I chose animal science as my degree and Cornell was a good school for that. So I was able to get in there and start that. But very quickly into my education, I realized this was probably not the right career path. Um, but I kept the major because it was still very interesting to learn about biology and I could incorporate uh, some of that pre-med, pre-medical courses into it. So I did keep the major. I'm guessing growing up, your, your parents had influence over your, your philosophy and your, uh, your work ethic and uh, really just probably helped motivate you along whatever path you chose. Um, was there any influence from your parents uh, kind of guiding you towards veterinary or? No, not that I can think of. They weren't really ever uh, pushy or wanted me to be anything in particular. So I don't really remember that being a part of, part of my growing up. Um, I just, I did see them working all the time. So I guess that rubbed off on me. I mean, I, I wouldn't call myself um, a hard worker back then. I didn't really have a work ethic. I didn't know um, how to study properly. Growing up in a, maybe an immigrant family where the parents aren't always home, it was really up to the kids to manage ourselves and um, kind of raise ourselves. So there was a lot of independence growing up. I think really it was only into my 20s, late 20s that I discovered or developed a work ethic and really around the subject matter that I found interesting. So going to grad school was completely different from growing, going to undergrad. Grad school was more of a conscious choice. I, want, I knew what I wanted to study. And so that really helped uh, build the motivation and give me the drive to put the hours in and develop that work ethic in graduate school. I think for undergrad, a lot of it was still me growing up emotionally and socially and learning some of these life skills. So I didn't get as much out of my undergraduate years as I could have. And, and what motivated you to uh, go to Korea and, and teach English? 
that was just an opportunity I had. So I was working in New York City in a biomedical laboratory after university and I had applied to medical schools. Um, so those applications were out there. I had a couple of months for them to come back and I didn't want to keep working in the lab. So I decided to take some time off. Um, we had a family friend who was a missionary, a Christian missionary working out in Seoul. He was just a year or two older than myself. And so he was already there doing, doing this very interesting work. And so I got connected to him and was able to go and support him in that social work. And I thought I'd be there for two months and come back to the States and start school, but ended up being there for a little over two years. How would you describe your, your personal philosophy and, and maybe what were some of the influences? So I did grow up in the church, in the Christian church. Um, so I had that as a foundation. I don't think my faith really became my own until my early 20s, close to the end of university. And then throughout my 20s and into my 30s, that was really when I began to examine what I believed and why I believed what I believed. So digging into the fundamentals of my faith, um, getting to grips with it and the philosophy underneath it. So I call myself, I am a Christian, um, and I think my worldview is definitely a Christian theistic worldview. One of the, the things that struck me in one of the messages that you sent to me, well, there, there is a series uh, of things that uh, struck me, really the, the relationship between free will and rationality the relationship between purpose and meaning, the, object, the objectivity of morality, the requirements for happiness, and um, maybe some of the presuppositions of gender dysphoria. Like all of these things really kind of piqued my, my curiosity to really get um, your take on, on these topics and maybe broaden my my understanding of them and um and so i'm just eager to to dig in maybe we can start with the requirements for happiness sure um and I'd, again i'd love to hear from you as well this is a conversation and yeah. i learn as i speak and i think as i speak so every time um, i have a conversation i'm looking to learn as well so I think that I think what I was thinking about with that phrase was happiness, like happiness is a goal or it's presented to us as a goal. We all want to be happy. That's the goal of life. But I think what I've come across over the over the years is happiness is not best pursued as a primary goal. It seems to be like a great side effect of pursuing something else. And if you're, if you're pursuing the right goal, happiness seems to be like an, a symptom or an indicator that you are pursuing the right thing, the right goal, which is not happiness itself, it's something else. So I think, for example, um, people are looking for, um, they're looking for different things, right? They're, they're, they think uh, maybe achieving a particular career will make them happy. So they're pursuing the career as the primary goal. And if I think if it's the right career and if it's the kind of work that 
they were made for, um, that they will find themselves happy in the pursuit of that career. So I think I was trying to make that distinction, like happiness not as a goal in itself, but as a natural consequence and maybe a signal that you're pursuing the right thing. And if you're not happy, that may be a signal that you're pursuing the wrong thing. What do you think right. about that? No, I, I think you're, you're right on. And I, I think you're alluding to um, purpose and meaning. So yeah, I think you could use those words interchangeably, but the way that you phrased it was the relationship between purpose and meaning. Um, yeah. And so, and, and I can speak from my own experience after being in the fire service for, for 23 years, uh, I identified as a firefighter, as a fire officer. That was, that was my purpose on earth. I left the fire service and I'm no longer a firefighter. So that identity is gone. But really, what I was doing, what I was passionate about, and what I found meaning in the work um, was connected to my purpose. And what, I, what I've discovered is that my purpose is really to help others in some capacity. That's what brings me joy. And... You can do that in so many different occupations or pursuits. Um, so still trying to formulate how I would identify myself if I was you know, explaining it to somebody, because mm -hmm. you know, the easiest thing is I'm a retired firefighter. Um, mm -hmm. But that really doesn't speak to what my passions are right yeah that that seems to be more backward facing than kind of forward facing and I, I think you've hit the nail on the head the distinction that I was trying to make you you described perfectly I don't I think people do use those terms interchangeably but for whatever reason I took some time to think about it a couple months back and I was like I don't think they're the same thing I think purpose is required for meaning and like purpose informs meaning. So for you, like you said, your purpose was to be a firefighter and therefore everything you did in your life became meaningful within that purposeful context. And I think of stories, um, there's, a, there's a hero, the hero has a purpose to go to the mountain, maybe kill the dragon uh, and he's called to that purpose. And so whatever he experiences on that journey has a meaning. It's meaningful toward achieving the purpose, whether it's suffering or good things. They, they, they're all meaningful because they're helping them along the journey to achieving the purpose. If there was no purpose, then the suffering would just be meaningless. It would just be brute suffering or whatever fortune, fortunate events happen, they would just be lucky or again, they'd be meaningless. But it's only when there is a purpose in the future that our lives are like pointed towards does it 
kind of go back in time and make all the different events in our lives meaningful toward that purpose. I think that was that's what I was pointing toward in the relationship between purpose and meaning. And how about what you were alluding to when you when you wrote the uh, the relationship between free will and rationality? Yeah, so as I think about free will, I know one of the bigger debates, maybe not now, but in the recent past was, do we really have free will? Like, or are we determined by the physics um, in our brain, physics and chemistry, by the laws of physics and chemistry to do and think whatever we're doing and thinking. And so as I thought about that, I came across different arguments saying, um, well, to believe in anything rationally um, is to believe that thing for, for good reasons. So it's to choose to believe something based on good reasons. So when I thought about rationality and believing things for good reasons and actually choosing, you have to choose to believe things for good reasons. I realized that rationality requires the freedom to choose. It requires genuine free will in order to be rational. And so with that in place, I was thinking, well, if you believe that you don't have free will, that means everything that you're thinking and believing is by definition irrational because you didn't choose to believe them based on good reasons. So even the belief that you, <laughs> and this gets a little bit twisted, but even the belief that you're, you don't have free will is itself an irrational belief, which kind of crumbled it all down for me. And so I do believe that free will is necessary, um, that it's real and it's necessary for rationality. Did you follow that? Yeah, absolutely. And it makes perfect sense. Um, I, I always believed in free will, but I hadn't made the connection between free will and rationality. Yeah, so it's, it's funny that a lot of these really smart people and even maybe philosophers that are saying we don't have free will are at the same time like appealing to our rationality to believe them based on good reasons. It, yeah, it seems upside down, but yeah. And I'm, I'm curious about the objectivity of morality. Can, can you talk about what you mean by that? Yeah, so for that, um, uh, as a Christian theist, I believe that there are objective moral values and moral obligations in the world. So that means there are moral values, like maybe the value of human life or the value of life in general. Um, and there are moral obligations like, thou shalt not murder. Like these things are true, whether I believe in them or not, whether anyone believes in them or not, these things are true objectively. They're outside of ourselves. So that's, um, that's my position on morality. I think there are many, many people who don't take that view and they believe that morality is subjective, meaning it's, it's relative to the person what's true for me is true for me in terms of morality and what's true for you is true for you. There is no objective standard that sits outside of 
the human race um, to guide behavior. Yeah, I would, I would agree that morality is objective. I think that there are universal truths uh, that, that span human history. Um, I, I feel like there has always been an understanding of what is right and what is wrong. Uh, you know, and you, you framed that within uh, Christianity, mm -hmm. but it's not necessarily confined to Christianity. I mean, it, those, those morals existed pre mm -hmm. uh, Christianity. Absolutely. But I think, I think this is a great segue and thank you for bringing it up. I think the people that believe in objective morals, but are not theists, let's just say theists, that they don't believe in a God that defines and sets those objective moral truths. I think they have a really hard time, maybe an insurmountable challenge to justify where do those objective moral values and obligations come from if there is no uh, divine law maker. So that, that's a gap that I've come across. And I don't know if you are a theist or not. If you're not, I'd love to hear if you've thought about that. Where do they come from? Well, I, I think that um, there is a, a sense of community just in humankind that we all are part of one group, you know, um, life on earth, and that we all serve a purpose within that, um, within our lifetime, we serve a purpose to those around us. And that purpose, I believe, is to intentionally add value to those around, around us. And, um, and, and I think that morality isn't confined to either theism or atheism. I think that morality is something that is established when any group of people come together. There is a, a consensus of what is right behavior to exist within a community. Uh, something that is in, ingrained in us that, you know, survival is dependent on coming together as a community mm -hmm. and, and working together to survive and flourish and reproduce and uh, exist, perpetuate, yeah. uh, perpetuate humankind. Mm -hmm. I hear you. And I'm gonna to try to articulate my thoughts maybe for the first time around this. So it sounds to me like you're, you're wanting to ground universal human morality in almost our evolutionary history and biology. The fact that we are social primates means there is a kind of 
quote unquote objective way for social primates to flourish as as a group. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can I can probably buy that, but maybe if we take it one one level further, um, like the reality is there are there have been and there are many many different groups in the world groups of human beings social primates that have that are scattered across the world they've all got different cultures and if we go like maybe one step above the the very maybe foundational moral values of the hunter gatherer group maybe those would be like you know don't kill don't kill your neighbor within your in group that that may be like a very basic um, core core obligation moral obligation but if you go a little bit bigger and as societies grow and you see just larger more more developed societies all across the world there are societies where um the it's it's okay uh, the moral is to love your neighbor right there are societies that say love your neighbor whether they're um in your particular in-group or not. And then there are other societies where they say, it's okay to eat your neighbor. Like, there are cannibalistic societies in the world where it's perfectly okay, maybe even morally virtuous to kill a member of, of another tribe and eat them. So they do get quite different depending on where that group is and how they've maybe developed over time. The expression of some of those core values can be quite divergent, and so when I see that um, those differences, I think um, on that view and looking at reality and the differences in the moral values of different cultures over time and even today in different parts of the world, it it seems to me you couldn't hold a view that morality is objective because there are all these different expressions of it that are so, so different. Like love your neighbor versus eat your neighbor is completely different as a moral value. Um, so what do you make of that? Well, I, I think that that argument could be made even within Christianity just within Christianity, if you exclude all, all other groups of society, there is divergent within the Christian mm -hmm. church. You know, there's different beliefs, different sects, but if all you have to do is believe in Jesus Christ and, and the crucifixion to gain salvation, and then it's acceptable to to do other evils mm -hmm. just, and, so, and we don't mm -hmm. have to get into, cause I, I, and I'm, I'm just playing devil's advocate here for the conversation um, because I think there's good and evil in, in all groups of society. And it's um, not- Absolutely. Yeah, so, it, so it's it not- is. I thank you for that question. And I think it's sharpening my own, my own thinking about it, actually. So you're right. Um, even within the different Christian groups, you know, there are Christians that behave badly. And so I don't think the argument I'm making is, is just because there is difference, um, 
that morality is relative. I don't think that's the argument I'm making. So that was a mistake on my part. I think in the Christian worldview, we believe that there is like, there is an objective moral standard. So all these divergent expressions of that are incorrect. They're wrong and incorrect expressions of the moral standard. I think in the biological view of morality in that, um, in, from that perspective, okay, so social primates, um, because we are social primates, we evolved to be these kinds of individuals and we live in these kinds of groups and therefore there is a, an objective set of moral uh, values and obligations that are ideal for social primates. And, and I think that in any society, there's going to be individuals that spend more time thinking about that than others. Um, and they'll be the ones that share their thoughts on what's right and what's wrong. And, you know, as that group of individuals grows um, and others want to come and join their group, there's a set of norms that's acceptable. And uh, it, it, I just feel that morality can exist with or without the belief in a higher power. Um, and and I, I take that from a conversation that I had with an atheist and, and I've, you know, I've studied a lot of world religions and philosophies and I've had conversations with a lot of very deep thinkers. And one of the arguments, because I, I had similar thoughts on the subject that without uh, a belief in a higher power with uh, you know, divine authority to set uh, a set of morals that we're all to follow, that it would be anarchy and uh, a, the value of human life and decency would be non-existent, but that just isn't the truth. And when I posed that, it was like, so you're saying that I would need to believe in a higher power in order to be a decent person. Oh, no. And, so. Mm -hmm. and so that, that kind of shifted things for me where I, I think that it is outside of some declaration or uh, a set of divine laws or divine morals. It, it is whether or not that community accepts as a group what is right and what is wrong. So that's where I think a lot of the divergence comes from. As you go around the globe, there's there's different beliefs, there's different cultures. You can have one, one group of people on this side of the earth and another group of people on this side of the earth. Both of them mm -hmm. are Orthodox Jews, um, but they have different customs. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's um, 
they'll be very similar, but there will be different customs. And just like Christianity, um, different sects in Islam, um, there's different sects in Buddhism, um, yeah. different, you know, as, as you- Can you I know, dig in a little bit more on that? Yeah, yeah, so absolutely. Would, would you be comfortable to, to say that any culture um, has a wrong set of moral values or has a wrong moral practice? Like, would you be comfortable to say, maybe um, like point to a culture, let's say, uh, I don't know, Afghanistan or something and say like child, what are they called? Um, sending your daughters to get married uh, when they're 10 or 11, child marriages maybe they're called. Would you be comfortable saying that's wrong or or would you just say that's that's the way they do things over there? There's no right or wrong in terms of No, I, I believe like that. that with, there are different cultures around the globe, but I believe that there is a set of morals that encompasses the entire globe for humankind, okay? okay? And okay. I do believe that there are cultures that have not evolved mm -hmm. and uh, i believe that a lot of those behaviors go back to biblical times and they were accepted back then and completely accepted but in our society today they're not accepted and i i feel that it's because we have a different understanding of mental health and what that kind of stuff can do to a person mentally and physically, oh, yeah. and mm -hmm. just, it's not good. So there is a morality yeah. that I think evolves as, as we understand psychology and physiology better, mm -hmm. you know, as, as knowledge uh, is more accessible. And yeah. those things that are abhorrent to us, there is a level of ignorance mm -hmm. in different parts of the world where do we judge people based on their ignorance or, and, and, that's, and that's the thing, that's the, the dilemma that I've come up with when I've thought about these things where, you know, would you, it's not whether or not you accept that as being okay, because it's not okay. And I would never accept those things to be okay or say, oh yeah, well, you know, they don't know what they're doing. I think that it is a, a moral obligation for those in the world that do have knowledge to educate those societies and hopefully change the behavior so that we're not harming children, uh, you know, because I think mm -hmm. the fact that there is knowledge, um, and, but then you go into the, the conversation of whose responsibility is it? Yeah. Since we know that it's happening, are we not guilty of looking the other way if we don't do anything about it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so in your response, I'm definitely hearing you are, uh, you believe in objective moral, uh, objective morality, and 
Yes, absolutely. Um, but, but I think the question that's coming to my mind is, do you not think the morality that you hold as an American at this time in history uh, has been influenced probably very heavily by Christianity. And so the values you have are rooted in the Christian tradition over the past 2000 years in the West. And so do you yeah. think there's a chance that um, maybe you're just a product of your culture as much as uh, the Muslim or the cannibal. Let's just say, let's keep it simpler, maybe a simpler example, like the cannibal living in the jungles of Papua New Guinea. They're a product of their cultural and evolutionary history. Yeah, no, I- um, What makes I, you so confident? Yeah, No, I, I do believe that I am a product of, you know, <laughs> growing up in, uh, in a culture that is predominantly Christian. Um, I was raised Lutheran. Um, I went to a Southern Baptist private school. I had aspirations of becoming a minister and, and, and studied theology for, for quite some time. I got my bachelor's and master's degree from a private Catholic university. Um, I'm not uh, a stranger to Christianity, but I do believe that Christianity was influenced by older philosophies and traditions. And, um, and so, and, and some of those uh, philosophies and traditions are, are not theistic. Well, I'm, I'm thinking back to like, so behind Christianity was Judaism. So Judaism is theistic. When I look at all the other cultures in the world and uh, the moral systems that have come out of those cultures in the world, they're all different. Um, Christianity is also one of many different moral systems that have come up in the world over human history. But it's come to dominate maybe the West, what we call the West over the past 2000 years. Um, and it's like the predominant like Western moral system in terms of values, um, taking God out of it, like just the universal human rights and values that are there in the, um, in the UN declaration are, are pretty like the humanistic values. Like these are these are pretty Christian values that have developed within that context. Well, um, you could see some crossover between Buddhism and Christianity, right? And and yes, really, there but the society. Mm, go ahead. You know, and Buddhism really doesn't believe in uh, a deity. It's more of you know a. a infinite ball of energy, I guess, that we're all a part of. And that when we reach enlightenment, we become one with that energy. Um, but a lot of their, uh, a lot of the moral teachings of Buddhism are, you know, very in line with, with Christianity. 
going back to Buddhism, so at the bottom of Buddhism, you're saying there is no God, it's atheistic, it's impersonal, there is no mind or consciousness uh, at the bottom of reality in that worldview. So in that case, when I think about morality, I feel like morality is very, uh, it relates to individuals, it relates to interpersonal interactions, person to person interactions. That's what morality is all about. So if at the bottom of reality, there are no persons, there is no person, there is no individual consciousness, there, there are no relationships. How could that like foundation for reality, how does that prop up a morality that is interpersonal, that is so social and that is objective um, and applies to all human beings? So like for me, there's like a gap there. There's like a, if, if the fundamental reality is impersonal and unconscious, it seems like it's uh, an infinite gap to cross from there to an objective morality that is so social and interpersonal and that applies to all human beings, whether they believe in it or not, it is true for every human being. So that's, that's the, I guess, the uh, non-theistic worldview. And then, but on the theistic worldview, you have at the bottom of reality, a person and in Christianity, you have a trinity. You, ha you have a society of persons at the foundation of all reality. And so it kind of makes more sense to me that out of, out of that fundamental society come social norms, these objective moral norms that would apply to other social beings, human beings, for example. And that could be um, objective and binding to those social beings. So it's, it, for, for me, it seems like there's more compatibility in that theistic model for objective morality than a non-theistic worldview where at the bottom of reality, there, there are no persons, like I don't mean bodies, but like there are no minds. It's just unconsciousness or just energy. What do you think well, of that? Well, isn't that what consciousness is, is energy? Well, I'm, di I'm distinguishing uh, like consciousness from unconsciousness, I guess, like energy being unaware. It's just, it's just a force. There's no uh, self-awareness in energy as far as we know, right? So I'm distinguishing consciousness from unconsciousness. Okay. Yeah, I am. Um, and so I would like from that perspective, I would like what's coming to my mind is in Christianity, when, when we die, if you know, there is a heaven and after we die, we go to heaven, we are not aware of our loved ones here on earth or our loved ones that have passed before us, we, we won't recognize them, correct? I mean, I think there's, based on your understanding of heaven, mm -hmm. and that really is the continuation of our consciousness, right? 
Yes, yes, I do believe that. And that's and that would be our soul. Yeah, right. You can call it that. Yeah, mind. Yeah. And, and and so I I think that and this is just my understanding of it. Um, I I may be wrong, but when a Buddhist passes. Mm -hmm. Either they're reincarnated or they reach enlightenment and they mm -hmm. become one with mm -hmm. uh, with everything mm -hmm. and um, and become part of this universal consciousness essentially. So I or don't believe that well, I don't believe that they uh, just slip into oblivion and there's no awareness. it's I, I believe, the reason they use the word enlightenment is because they are fully conscious and fully connected to everything in the cosmos. And, and that's kind of my understanding of what enlightenment is. It's how I, I don't know, defined it in my head. Um, you know, quite frankly, mm -hmm. my, my thoughts are that it's very hard to definitively say that how I was brought up and the belief system that was taught to me is fully mine. And mm -hmm. I can conduct my life and, and follow what I believe to be right and, and true for myself. And if I'm wrong, and it is, you know, some other version of theism out there that, you know, is the right one, or because I wasn't raised Catholic, maybe I was, you know, to, to make it to heaven, you've got to be Catholic and do certain rites of passage, you know, uh, you know, get absolved of any mortal sins that I may have committed, you know, to be able to live eternity and or experience eternity in heaven. Now, I think that there are some diehard Catholics that, you know, if I'm a Protestant, I'm not going there. But as a Protestant, thinking that, you know, somebody that, um, has it wrong, you know, uh, maybe uh, all Buddhists are going to go to hell or, um, you know, all, all gays are going to burn in hell or something like that. And there's, there's a part of me that just cannot accept that, you know, if, if God created everyone mm -hmm. and created everyone in his own image, mm -hmm if we have the ability to create our own cultures and our own societies and our own values are not, you know, is, is he really going to condemn people that express themselves a certain way and their understanding of the afterlife and their way? Is he going to condemn them to an eternity in hell? And I, or, or those that are, um, born that 
identify, uh, you know, they, they love the same sex, you know, they, you know, and, and, or even, and this is where I, I have a, a tough time with the whole homosexuality thing is what about the individuals that are born with both sexes? Mm-hmm. You know, is that an abomination to God? Right. I, I would say I would say no. Yeah, I would say no. And and then when you know a child or a baby is born with both sexes and a decision is made, okay, well, you can't go on like that your entire life. Let's sew this mm-hmm. up or chop that off. And now you're going to have to assimilate to what we have assigned you. Um, Mm. And I I just feel like there there has to be, if there is a God and there is uh, a Savior, and I, I don't believe that this omniscient, omnipresent, deity would say all right do this you get Mm -hmm. into heaven you do that you're going to hell i I think that um that is that is my that's that's my dilemma when it comes Mm -hmm. to theism and atheism and philosophy and i i think that um I can I can live my life the best I can and try and add value to as many people as possible and and treat people with respect and uh, when my time when my time comes to an end um, if there is an afterlife hopefully I'll be welcomed with open arms and if- Dude, I'd, I'd love to speak to that issue of hell um, I think and it I think it's a good good one to maybe end on because I think it ties some of the themes we've talked about in this conversation together. Yeah. So um, I think what helped me thinking through that was I think um, all these images of hell, are, they're images, they're pictures, whether it's in the Bible or through tradition and artwork. And I think a lot of our misperceptions about it are just an artifact of those, those expressions that were um, contextual to a right. certain time and, and place maybe medieval, medieval europe maybe and 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 just to clarify like i do know that in in the bible it's really represented as just a separation from god that, well, there are pictures of fire and burning and, well that and i think that. i think the pictures of fire and and burning are more of like you said I don't, I don't believe that Jesus ever talked about that. Or, you know, I, mm-hmm. I think it was more uh, a man-made image of like, you know, mm-hmm. burning and gnashing of teeth and all that. Right. The suffering yes. is meant to mm-hmm. equate that you are mm-hmm. no longer going to be in the presence of God. Yes, That's, which I think I've heard and I believe is far worse than burning in flames. So what helped me actually um, understand this better for myself is um, I've heard a phrase, in the end, 
um, we will say to God, your will be done, or God will say to us, your will be done. So he made us, gave us free will. He gave us the ability to make our own decisions. And one view of hell that I've heard and I really like, and I think fits in free will very well is in the end, we end up wherever we want to go. So the tra trajectory of our lives, some of us meet God and submit ourselves to him and want to follow his will. And we say, your will be done, God. I'll live my way, my life according to your will. And then there are others who say, um, who either never meet God or reject him outright and say, I'm going to live the way I want to live. And in the end, because God respects free will, it's a gift he gave every human being. He says, well, you can go on the way you want to go on. Your will be done, person who wants to be by himself. And if you extend that out to eternity, you end up being separated from God completely. Um, and I heard a phrase, the doors of hell are locked from the inside. It's not locked from the outside, like people are trying to get out. It's they shut the doors from the inside because they don't want to get out. They'd rather rule in hell than, what is, it, what is the word? I'd rather rule in hell than serve in heaven is kind of the mindset of people who are separated from God because they don't want to live under any authority other than their own. And that is, that is what I view hell to be. It is the place set aside for those who want to continue on living for themselves and no other. And God says, your will be done. That's the way I've, I've viewed it. And I think it ties in free will and God's respect for it and also love for his people that he's not gonna override your free will. Uh, and he respects your choice in that way. And um, yeah, so what do you think of that picture? Like the doors of hell are locked from the inside. The people in there want to be there. They don't want to serve under God's authority and be with him and in relationship with him. They wanna continue on being the, their own authorities, like the Lord of their own lives. And that's them and hell is just a picture of that place. Well, I, I think that there would have to be a belief in God to make that decision of I'd rather serve in hell than, or I'd rather rule in hell than serve in heaven. There would have to be a belief in God. And and I, I understand that there are some that believe that um, being presented a Bible or, you know, told, told about the gospel of Jesus, or that is enough of an introduction for somebody to make a decision on eternity. And, and I would say that, you know, I don't believe that that is the case, because I think that a lot of times when you, well, for me, after digging into Christ, Christianity and the canonization of the Bible and, and knowing that so many things were left out, 
of this book that is supposed to be the word of God. And in my mind, it is the words of men and their best attempt at describing what Christianity is supposed to be, what, you know, to lay out the uh, image of who Jesus was. And, you know, the, the Old Testament is a way to lay out the genealogy to fulfill the prophecy of who the Son of God is, mm-hmm. the, the Savior. And then you go from there. And then, you know, in those days, there was um, belief that John the Baptist was the Savior. And then there was Jesus. And there are stories of John the Baptist baptizing Jesus. Now, I just, my, my point in all of this is that the canonization came about because there was um, conflicting beliefs and there was inconsistencies in all the different versions of scripture. And, you know, all the, the leaders of, of the church came together to bring about one, one text that everybody could read and believe in. But it was so far separated from the time of Jesus. It, it's 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 hard. I think so. I mean, I've heard different things about the canon, um, but I think underneath that is from your study, you have a sincere you you are you are sincerely skeptical about the claims of Christianity and the Bible, the reliability of the Bible. So you have these sincere doubts and you can't believe it because, um, because of what you've read, um, what you believe about the, the process of the way the Bible has come together. You just don't think it's reliable. And so you, you are a sincere agnostic or you're, you're sincerely um, a non-Christian. And am I hearing is the concern then as a sincere non-Christian, as someone who's looked into these things and can't believe, um, will God punish me for my sincere skepticism? Is that underneath some, um, uh, some of the examples? So I, I would say that if I, if I continue to live my life in, in service of mankind, I, think I'm doing God's will um you know it if I violate um you know morality uh you know I'll have to answer to that but there is not definitive proof for me mm-hmm. to say this is concrete and I can believe it with full faith, mm-hmm. you know, this is the only way for me to get into heaven, or, you know, if I don't believe this, I'm gonna go to hell. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't um, feel that it's wrong to be Christian, not at all. Um, I believe that 
I have a lot of the very same values. You know, I mean, I was I was raised in the church, so a lot of my values are consistent with with Christianity. But I would say that there are other religions out there that are consistent with the same values. So what, what are your thoughts on that? Should I be concerned? Um, no, I think anyone who's living for others is doing God's will. Um, Isaacius, yeah, I wouldn't object to that. And what I believe God wants is a relationship with us um, and doing good works and living for society. These things are, they're good, but they don't earn, they don't earn our way. They don't uh, earn our salvation. These are just expressions of the relationship that we have with God because of our salvation that he's finished for us so that's the gospel right um he's done the work he's already saved and rescued us we're already adopted we are already children and like to the to the degree that we know that we're going to live out lives of good work and good lives for society and we're gonna add value and all that as a result but not as a means of salvation but kind of as a result of the fact that we are saved so uh yeah maybe it sounds to me like maybe your understanding of christianity is more maybe works-based if i do these things at the end of my life my good works will be weighed against my sins and if the scales come up in my favor then i go to heaven um, no that's no, not my understanding no I, that's not my understanding of christianity either as a matter of fact the way I understand it is there is nothing that we can do as humans to earn a place in heaven. It is only uh, Jesus, the salvation provided to us through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But is that salvation only given to those that believe. And I would say, no, I, I think, I think that there is going to be people that, that don't believe. And, um, and I, I think that an all loving God, gave his only son to um, really adopt everyone. Yeah, I, I think an all-loving God who gave his son to die for everyone um, loves human beings to the point where he's not going to override our free will. Like he's going to respect our free will. Um, so for me, that kind of makes compatible the idea of hell as a place where people who freely choose to be separated from God are allowed to dwell or, or allowed to be. And while at the same time, an all loving God who 
loves us and gave his son for us um, also has a place where his children children can live with him in relationship forever so that would be heaven i think those concepts kind of tie tie okay for me at least right now yeah no i and a lot of this conversation is really just, I guess, thinking out loud, um, mm -hmm. where I understand your, your perspective and, um, and I, I respect it a great deal. Um, I just don't have the, the same perspective from, from my position, I would say that an all loving God that gives his son to be crucified by the Romans for man, you know, humankind's salvation is, um, you know, even, you know, Jesus on the cross, if, if you're to believe the story in the Bible, the, the Roman guard that stuck his spear in, in his side said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. And Jesus said that. Yeah. And so if that is the case, then I would say that salvation is for everyone. You know, that. Mm -hmm. I think there are Christians that do believe that. I think they're maybe they're called universalists. There are Christians that do believe that salvation eventually will be extended to everyone, even the devil, maybe. So I think that is, you know, it is a, a perspective that sits with, with inside the, the umbrella. And, and so my, my point in this conversation is that I believe that having morals is not dependent on whether you believe in a God or you believe there is no God. I think there, and, and cause I, I believe we took that path from talking about morals to talking about theism and atheism and how you can um, accept it more as, as mm. being something that is um, kind of laid out for us by a higher power. Um, that there yeah, just is... to make, a, just to make a distinction there. So I think there is a difference between the, so there are at least two questions. One question is how do people come to know morality? Um, and I think in philosophy that's called like moral epistemology so how do people come to know and they may come to know in different ways and the other question is um, what grounds objective morality and i think the okay the that, category that's of that really what you now. were saying yeah moral ontology is that question like what grounds morality as opposed to how do people come to know it and maybe can people be moral? Those are separate questions from what grounds morality. And I, I 
certainly agree with you and anyone, you don't have to believe in God to be a moral person, uh, to even believe in, well, to know what is right and to do what is right doesn't depend on knowing God. So I, I would never say you have to be a Christian to be a good person or anything like that. Um, I, I think the argument I was making was theism to me answers the question of moral ontology better than atheism or non-theism because of what I think morality is, like the characteristics of morality being social and personal, um, I think fit better inside a theistic framework than a non-theistic framework. If that helps um, clarify the position. Yeah, and, and but I would just to play off of that a little bit, I, I would say that maybe not so much because if you don't believe that there is any life after birth, yeah, if there isn't any life after death, then the experiences that we have on earth is it. So to make the best of it, mm -hmm. to live a good life and to be in harmony with the world around us uh, kind of lends itself to saying, okay, you'll have a better life and mm -hmm. uh, experience better things if you have good morals. Mm -hmm. um, but it's temporary. I think, I think this is great because it's kind of going back to where we started talking about purpose and meaning. Like if there is no purpose, ultimate purpose, to the universe, to the earth, to human beings, um, then our morality is meaningless. It just becomes actions that we do that uh, maybe give us a better life temporarily here on earth, but eventually the earth is going to burn up, the sun will burn up, the universe will, you know, will equilibrate and if there's no ultimate purpose, then it strips the meaning out of almost, well, out of everything that happens. Um, so I think maybe that's another question that you were alluding to. Um, the non-theistic worldview does not have an ultimate purpose within it. Um, and therefore, again, it makes objective morality, I think, less plausible the way we understand morality as being. You, know, you and I believe morality is meaningful. It is, there is a right way to live, a right way for societies to live. There are right and wrong behaviors and these matter. They don't, they don't just matter for the here and now or for as long as human beings are on the earth. I think people in their hearts maybe believe these things matter universally. They're going to matter when the earth isn't around anymore. Um, but it's hard to justify that belief on a non-theistic worldview as opposed to a theistic one. Man, I tell you what, this has been a great conversation and I, I really enjoyed it. Me too, David. Thank you so much. You've gotten me thinking uh, and asking different questions. I've, I could go on for another hour, but yeah. I really should get back to work before the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, 
No, man, I really, really appreciate you you coming on and talking with me. This has been very enjoyable. I really appreciate your your perspective and um, the back and forth. It it made for a great conversation, uh, very meaningful to me. Um, made me think a lot as well. Uh, so I really, really appreciate it. And uh, and I, you know, let's stay in touch because I. I don't know, maybe I can uh, talk to you about some some other philosophical views um, where, you know, I, I kind of feel like uh, there are some Taoist underpinnings, maybe. Mm-hmm. I, there's, there's this, um, I would say, a, a common thread from Taoism through Buddhism, Hinduism into Christianity. There's... Uh, and, and I'd love to explore that with you another time. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because I, I, I think it's to... really, I think it's really interesting, and um, yeah, I'd love to get your thoughts on it. Absolutely. Yeah, let's pick this up again. Yeah. Thank you, David. Thanks yeah, so much. Thank you. Have a great weekend. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them. And the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.